What's up, you guys? Real quick before the episode, I do have an important announcement to make. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this, and I've decided that this is going to be the last episode that I post until the new year. That's right, after today, we're gonna be taking a short break from uploading just to get caught up on some other projects and some other stuff for this channel. So if you've been following the story up until now, I hope that you'll come back and join us in January, but for now, on to the good stuff. He bound his hand first. The quarrel had carved a straight slash across his four fingers below the second knuckle. He rinsed it with whiskey. Blood and liquor pattered on the floor between his feet. By the time he'd finished with his hand, his mind was fuzzy and blood ran quicker from the stripe below his collarbone. He mopped his chest with the biggest piece of tunic he had left, then stared, scowling at his immobilized fingers, chewing his lip. A knock at the door. Yes. He didn't get up from his seat at the edge of the bed. A second knock. The room spun as he rose and shuffled over to the door. It was her. What's up, you guys? Welcome back to another episode, and not just any episode, but the last episode of Act One. Thank you to everyone who has followed the story from the beginning. Where we last left off, Haytham and Randall managed to mop up the cell swords that Killam had sent after him, narrowly avoiding spilling the beans that Lee had sold Haytham out to Killam in the first place. If you're not caught up yet, I will have a link to the full playlist down in the episode description so you can check that out there. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, I'll talk a little more about this milestone episode. But for now, I'm Josh Call, and this is Last Coliseum. The outlaw was dying. That knowledge dawned on him slowly. Or perhaps he fought it and fought it until the fact was inescapable. His chest was drenched. Blood pooled on the hard pan around Haytham's knees and seeped down hungry cracks in the crust. Who is it? The brawler snarled again, this time grabbing him by his wet lapel and shaking the dying man. Blood smeared his hands and flowed faster from the hole in the bulldog's throat. When his head lolled back, he could see clean through to the other side. Who is it? A wet suckling sound rose from his ruined throat. He might have been trying to tell Haytham what he knew. Might only have been telling him to bite gravel. His eyes rolled back and turned to glass. The brawler shook him again. We need to leave, Randall. Haytham could see him out of the corner of his eye. He was the only one left standing. He wiped his short sword clean on a tuft of yellow grass, then dipped his head toward the blaze. Someone will see. They'll come on horses. He was right. The column of smoke would be visible for miles. They'd send horses just to keep the flames from spreading. Devil only knew what they'd do when they found a dozen butchered bodies besides. He dropped the dead man and stood up. The lights of the edge were faint but visible in the distance, two fingers above the horizon. He knew how they'd get back in. Kingmaker had thought of everything. Even now, there was a man standing by to smuggle them through the gate. He had to see Amatha. She'd been his first thought when the bulldog named the tavern. If they had him all the way out here, why shouldn't there be more lying in wait for him there? It wasn't lost on the brawler that he might be barreling nose first into a second ambush, only now with the spent battlefire leaving his mind and body dead tired and aching. He grit his teeth. He'd done more with less. The boy was in shock. He was still sprawled where he'd fallen, hellfire reflected in his eyes. The sellsword was watching him. He wore a strange, pensive look that the brawler couldn't quite place. 
he offered a hand to the thief, and Lee took it mechanically. Haytham led the way home. No one spoke until they reached the gate. The crowd clapped on in rhythm with her stamping foot. She played with abandon. Sweat stung her eyes and ran down her brow in rivulets. Her bow was starting to fray, and her fingers throbbed deliciously in a way they seldom did. She hardly saw the crowd, the tap room, the motes of multi-hued light spilling from the lanterns on the tables. She plunged deep into her song, the thump of her heel upon the stage, a perfect counterpoint to her racing heart. Long before she'd been Moonrise, Am had always had a way of burying herself in her music. It was a clever trick, especially in those moments when her thoughts came on fast and heavy, piling one on top of the other until she could hardly bear up under the weight. The music let her wriggle free, let her breathe for a time. He left the inn days ago. He propped his door open to prove he'd gone. She'd felt a bitter sort of pleasure in seeing his room dark and empty, to have the Eidolon be her own again. Gone, but not gone. She thought she could seal him away in the boneyard of her memory. The brawler had other plans. He'd taken up new quarters in the back of her mind, crowding the rest of her thoughts and stealing to the forefront when she let her guard slip. He brought with him a dull ache she felt deep in her chest, a ghost of the hopelessness that had so overwhelmed her when she lost him the first time. She told herself she was angry, angry that he'd shown up without warning, angry that he'd pricked open old wounds, angry that her thoughts of him had barbs, and she couldn't remove them without bleeding. Anger she understood. Anger was better than grief. She could channel it into action. Tonight she played the taproom long past her obligation, and for a few blessed hours she hid from the specter of him. The only other means she had of absconding was to duck down into her cups. He'd sent her a bottle of blackberry wine. It was outside her door when she woke up. There hadn't been a note, but save for Elias, he was the only one who remembered that it had been her favorite. Had been. She'd only had it once since he was lost. Lost, for she couldn't rightly say died anymore. The taste of it had dredged up too many memories that she'd put away in the boneyard. She was a brandy girl now. Her fingers were numb when at last she swept the fiddle from her neck and bowed. Any longer and she'd start to miss notes. The crowd thundered its approval and she waded through their murmured praise toward the back of the taproom. She felt grasping hands touch the hem of her skirt as if she were some ancient mystic able to heal with a look or a word. There was a finger of brandy waiting for her at the edge of the bar. She gulped it down quick, then switched to water as her admirers came forward with their offers to buy. There was only one fellow who seemed not to care a whit about her. Indeed, he was holding a rather one-sided conversation with Berta as the tap mistress flitted about pouring. He was out of place among the cliffside fops, with his grubby leathers and pocked complexion. He was sallow and rangy, with blonde hair that fell to one side. Named Haytham. She heard him say over the bar chatter. You know Haytham? She asked, interrupting the merchantess who'd been prattling on. The rangy fellow's gaze raked her unpleasantly before he found her eyes. I'm looking for him. We're old friends. Amatha studied his pinched face. She didn't recognize him. The grubby stranger leered and leveled her a yellow grin that stank of grog and onions. Well, if you find him on this side of the jaw, tell him it's not far enough. 
The merchantess smirked, and Amatha hid her face behind her carved tankard. When she thumped it down on the bar top, he was still there, still sneering. What's he done to get on your bad side? He said in a husky voice, biting his lip. Am traded a pained look with the merchantess. She gave a sympathetic nod, her lips pursed. The lecher leaned in, the onion stink thickened. Tell you what, if you're ever looking for a real buck... Oh, do you know any? A few of her admirers who were watching their exchange snickered and bit their fists. Am was the very picture of innocence. The rangy man's pocked face flushed pink and his sneer faded. She bit the inside of her cheek to keep her composure. The lecher sauntered over and groped for a few almonds from the shallow stone bowl on the bar top in front of her. He hadn't washed in moons, maybe ever. A look of thin revulsion flitted across her features when he leaned past her. His eyes never left hers. When you get tired of these dandies, Philly, look me up. He dropped his voice to a murmur and his gaze so it snaked down her bodice. I'll have you screaming for it. He crunched the almonds between his teeth, showering her with nut shards. Am smiled up at him. Those antlers must be growing inward if you think I'd be caught dead with you, Mr. Buck. She replied loud enough to earn a burst of laughter from those around her. The man's flush darkened. A muscle in his jaw twitched, and one of his hands balled into a fist. He left soon after, muttering curses. She all but forgot him as soon as he was gone, save to accept a few murmured congratulations from the fops and the merchantess. The merchantess turned out to be fascinating. She was a pelt trader from the Whitewood, where she assured Am the wolves were as big as horses and the bears the size of elephants. Am had no idea what an elephant was, but she didn't dare admit her ignorance. When she ordered another false brandy for the fiddler and a glass of blackberry wine for herself, Am's eyes brightened. I have something for you. She took her fiddle case and darted up the stairs before the North Woman could protest. The chatter of the tap room faded behind her, and she slowed to a walk between the second and third floors. She avoided looking at the open door opposite hers and fumbled for her key. These days, she made a point of locking and relocking her door whenever she left. She tossed her case down on the four-poster and grabbed the dark bottle from where she'd stowed it in her desk drawer. She checked her reflection in the glass that hung on the inside of her wardrobe door. As she turned to go, the hall door snapped shut. All she saw was a dark flash of movement before a grubby hand clapped over her mouth. You think you're better than me, pretty? She smelled grog and onions and tried to scream. He pressed her hard against the wardrobe. I've stuck princesses. You'd be lucky. He leaned in close as if to kiss her, his hand still clamped over her mouth. She felt his hooked nose graze her cheek down to her shoulder. She shuddered and tried to push him away. He caught her wrist with his free hand and pinned it to her side. Her other hand found the knife in her bodice. She tore it loose and plunged down into the soft flesh between his neck and his shoulder. He snarled and flinched back as the blade pierced his leathers. By bitter providence, she'd stabbed into one of the brass buckles that held it all together and the blade only sunk in half an inch or so before he wrenched away from her. I'll gut you for that, you little bitch, he promised through gritted teeth. She opened her mouth for a scream. He smashed his brow into her face. She felt something snap, and hot blood gushed from both nostrils. The brute hissed as he plucked the knife from his shoulder. The tip gleamed black in the light from the window. 
She was still dazed from the headbutt. She felt cold steel against her neck. I like a little fight, he crooned, his teeth bared midway between a grin and a scowl. He pressed hard on the knife. A trickle of blood ran down to the hollow of her throat. Scream, and I'll open you up from ear to ear. Her eyes flicked desperately between the window and the door. The window was closer. It was a fifty-foot drop with hard cobbles below. But the door was impossibly far away, and her path was straddled by the man of the knife. If she could just wriggle past him without him carving her open, or else scream for Fitch and hope like mad that help came before the devil did. Just let me go, she heard herself plead. She hated the fear in her voice. The sliver of lamplight that shone below the door winked out. None of that now. He plucked loose the drawstring on his breeches. Do everything I say, Philly, he sneered, and you just might live. He looked her in the eye and ran his tongue over his stained teeth. She couldn't look away. Her vision blurred with tears. Behind him, she saw the door edge open. All right, she said quickly to hide the subtle creak of the hinge. Her voice shook. All right. Her gaze crept over his shoulder to the figure in the doorway, the hall dark and fathomless behind him. Her eyes met his, and her throat went tight. Blackbird. The brute saw her look. What are you? He peered back over his shoulder. His breath caught as the brawler came down on him like an avalanche. While he was still coming, she slapped the knife away, rammed her knee into the brute's groin, and drove his soul roaring from his body. He staggered back as Amatha clawed his face, screaming when she screwed her thumb into his eye. Haytham did the rest. He picked him up by the straps of his leathers and hurled him screeching across the room. Am saw scorch marks on the brawler's ruined tunic. He hardly acknowledged her. He gave her his back and advanced on his quarry. Somehow the brute had kept a grip on the knife. He came up swinging and opened a thin stripe high on Haytham's chest before the brawler caught his knife hand in one oak-hard fist. He twisted savagely to one side. The brittle snap as his wrist splintered made goose flesh ripple down Amatha's arms. The knife thunked into the floor between his feet. Haytham was without mercy. He seized him by the hair and dragged him wailing to the window. Am was rapt and horrified. There was black vengeance on the brawler's face. He smashed the man's head through the glass, and with him squealing for mercy, forced the almost raper head and shoulders through the window. Please, mate, I, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry. Don't do this. She screwed her eyes shut. Her tears overran. She almost called Haytham off. Almost. She wasn't sure if he'd have listened if she tried. One last heave and a sickening smack, five stories down, cut off his cries. When she dared look at the brawler, he'd turned to face her. Are you all right? He didn't quite meet her eyes. Are you? His tunic hung off his broad frame in bloody tatters, and he reeked of smoke. His face was shiny with fresh bruises. She kept her eyes trained on him. It was that or stare fixedly at the dreadful crimson shards that littered the floor around her window. Who was that? He was after me. She heard voices on the street below, feet thundering up the stairs. They both looked at the dark doorway. I wasn't here. He limped into the hall. Wait! He paused, looked back. Where are you staying? You're dead on your feet. It's not far. She recognized the name when he told her. She'd played the taproom a few times during the slow summer season when the nobles all fled north to escape the heat. It was hardly a stone's throw from the Eidolon. He slipped into the darkness of his old room and kicked away the plate he'd wedged under it as a doorstop. She followed him to her own door. 
The thunder and the voices took on shape as Fitch appeared at the top of the stairs, flanked by several of the fops. Haytham held a finger to his mashed lips as his door drifted shut. None of them saw. What happened? cried Fitch, seeing the blood on her face. One of the others reached for the saber on his belt. She told them in the taproom, in between sips, from a strong, sweet toddy that Berta had fixed while she changed clothes and cleaned her face. With the ease of her trade, she embellished the story around the edges to hide the Haytham-shaped hole at the center of it. When she was finished, the tap mistress laid a soft hand over hers. I'm so sorry, darling. Two of the lordlings traded a look. We should call the Grey Cloaks, growled one. Have him hunted down like a dog. Amatha cocked her head. You mean he's not... She couldn't bring herself to say dead. Berta pursed her lips. He landed in the bush, crawled away before anyone could stop him. She laughed bitterly. Some folk have the devil's luck. We should never have let him go, Fitch scowled. If I'd have known what he did, I'd have broken his other leg. Keepers will find him, swore the merchantess. You can be sure of that. Am nodded and looked down at the toddy cooling in her hands. She could feel all their eyes on her. She noticed a red print in the shape of her mouth on the edge of the mug. It was impossible to say whether it was blood or lip rouge, perhaps both. She drank deep, savoring the sweet fire taste as she ducked down into her cups. She hadn't been wrong. He was dead on his feet. The inn wasn't far, but his every step was an effort, and he came close to finding an alley and dropping off among the sots and the chasers. The night was cold, and his ruined tunic did little and less to keep the chill off. He peeled off the bloody garment while he was still shuffling toward his room. It came away in pieces. The night's events replayed at the edges of his thought. The dying man with the bulldog face, the tavern in flames, the boy in shock, Sparrow. All of these were a messy tangle in his mind, and he pushed them to arm's length. There'd be time to lay everything straight tomorrow. He found the half-empty bottle of threepenny whiskey under his bed and took a pull straight from the neck. It sat sour in his gut. He hadn't eaten in hours. He unspooled a long strip of gauze from the bundle the spider had sent along with his new clothes. If he hadn't, he'd have set about tearing up his bedsheets. He bound his hand first. The quarrel had carved a straight slash across his forefingers below the second knuckle. He rinsed it with whiskey. Blood and liquor pattered on the floor between his feet. By the time he'd finished with his hand, his mind was fuzzy, and blood ran quicker from the stripe below his collarbone. He mopped his chest with the biggest piece of tunic he had left, then stared, scowling at his immobilized fingers, chewing his lip. A knock at the door. Yes. He didn't get up from his seat at the edge of the bed. A second knock. The room spun as he rose and shuffled over to the door. It was her. She'd changed into a smock and loose breeches. Both of her nostrils were plugged with tufts of cotton. A thin curl of steam rose from the kettle at her side. In her other hand was loosely clutched the apology he'd sent to her door. Em. She bobbed her head down the hall. Barman told me which room was yours. He racked his mind for something, anything to say. Why are you here? She held up the bottle. I don't like Blackberry. That, that's all. She rolled her eyes. No, you idiot. I know better than to let you try and dress that yourself. She raised her gaze from the red stripe to his eyes. Are you going to let me in? He did, kicking the bloody bundle of tunic under his bed before she could see. Besides the kettle and the wine, she had a small canvas sack slung under her arm, and from this she withdrew a sponge, a wooden bowl, needles, and a thick yellow length of catgut. 
She placed all of these in a neat row on the little table where he'd eaten his dinner so many hours before. She poured hot water from the kettle into the bowl, then added the last finger of whiskey at the bottom of his bottle. She pointed over her shoulder at the edge of the bed. Sit, he sat. The watery mixture stung as she ran the sponge gently over his wound. He fixed his eyes on the wall behind her and offered no complaint. She worked in silence, her knee in between his, her breath warm on his chest. How did you know when to come? Haytham blinked. I had a feeling. She leaned back on her chair. Her eyes met his for half an instant. The bruises beginning to darken on either side of her nose made his throat tight. Should have come sooner. She rose quickly and went for the needle, leaving the sponge and the bowl between his feet. Haytham grit his teeth. He'd have gladly taken another brawl over the needle. She passed him the dark bottle of blackberry wine. For the pain. He passed it back. I'll be fine. She set down the spool of catgut and twisted off the cork. She pushed the bottle into his hands. By the look in her eye, he could tell that she would brook no argument, and as she sat, he took a long pull of the sweet wine. It had been more than a seven years since he'd tasted it. Even with the warm fog of the wine and the whiskey starting to soften his thoughts, the bite of the needle made his teeth clench. She felt him twitch as it ran him through, and she scolded him for it. She hummed softly in the way she used to in the old days after the pits, when she'd kiss his wounds one by one as she stitched him back together again. Then, as now, she smelled of cinnamon and lavender. It made his chest ache. She was finished much too quickly. She wrung the sponge dry and ran it once more over the neat row of stitches, surveying her handiwork. She cast about for a knife to snip the long strand of catgut that was left. When she didn't find one, she leaned in close and cut the cord between her teeth. He felt her lips graze his chest. He watched her stand and stow her effects on the little table. You haven't lost it. She didn't answer. Her gaze touched his briefly again as she returned with the bundle of gauze. A pink flush rose faintly to her cheeks. She picked up the blackberry bottle by the neck and drank deep. The rest of it was easier, and they traded nips from the bottle as she wrapped the gauze around his chest. Her fingers trailed across the scars that crisscrossed his frame and made the hairs on his arms bristle. Where'd all these come from? Her voice was low and velvety. He caught her hand in his and moved it up to the line of rough yellow teeth high on his chest. Same as this. Heroics, she teased him, one eyebrow arched. Men with knives. Something like that. She ripped the gauze and tucked the loose end under the wrapping. Change the dressing every two days until it heals. She advised him, swigging from the bottle, and let it heal. That means no heroics. She passed him the wine. Can you handle that? Haytham stood. I should get you home. He saw her jaw clench. She looked away and withdrew. Am? I... I don't want to go back there tonight. They won't let you change rooms. She'd crossed to the window. Her back was to him. He could tell that she was looking down the boulevard at the Eidolon. No, they will, she said in a small voice. If I ask. She turned to look at him. Tears shone bright in her eyes. One overran and charted its lonely course down her cheek. It ruined him. He was across the room before he could stop himself. She softened in his arms, her own slung in a loose circle around his neck. His face was buried in her hair. Stay, Haytham breathed. Stay here. She pressed herself deep into the hollow of his chest. 
It made his stitches burn, but he didn't care. I'll take the floor. He heard her laugh, felt her breath on his stomach. She looked up into his eyes, her own still shiny wet. He frowned. You're an idiot, whispered Sparrow. After that, she was kissing him. That night, she stayed. Neither took the floor. Thank you guys so much for listening. I have been incredibly excited to be able to get to this episode. When I first started working on this project of releasing the novel, I was going, man, I've got 50 something chapters to put out. This is a massive undertaking. And so I knew that the first big milestone that was gonna be in front of me was the end of act one. And here we are. I'm so stoked about it. It's been absolutely amazing to see the responses that people have had, both my friends who are listening to it, but also seeing on podcast, the, the map of the people who have been following this stuff. I mean, this story has listeners who are in LA, in New York, in Canada, in Israel, in Europe. It's awesome to see how many people are being impacted by this story. So I am incredibly humbled and grateful to be able to share this story with you. And we're just getting started. So if you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, notification bell. If you're listening on podcast, leave us a five-star review and make sure to check in next year. I'll catch you guys then.